Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Uh, welcome, everyone, to the Strength Coach Experience, episode number 44. Uh, today, I want to welcome back Lee Taft. Uh, Lee Taft was on episode number 28, and we had a wonderful uh, conversation just about speed and movement. Uh, for all you just tuning in, uh, Lee is the uh, head of Lee Taft Athletic Consulting, but he's pretty much the speed guru, movement guy, uh, mm-hmm. you know, known everywhere for, you know, the the way he just presents that stuff. I know for me personally, it was, you know, growing up as a coach and things like that. He was somebody I follow and still follow closely for, you know, all my movement stuff and, and just everything involving that. So Lee, thanks again for coming on. And uh, I'm excited to, you know, have you back on and have a conversation again. Well, thank you, Joe. No, I was excited when you reached out and uh, wanted to do a part two because I really enjoyed the last one and can't wait for this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. Yes, it is. Yeah. And of course, yeah, the first one was great. So, you know, why not have a second one and and get more knowledge out there and and more information? Definitely. Uh, So I kind of want to just, you know, pick up to where we we talked, you know, because we did your background last time and we kind of got into the coaching and the clinic stuff. Uh, So I want to jump right in. What's your advice on if you want to start a new business? You know, we have COVID now and, you know, the last couple, probably in almost two years now, and, and a lot of people almost are forced to start their own business. You know, if you were a trainer in a, in a place where it was affected or, or a business is, is closed, what would be your best advice for, for starting your own business, whether it be, you know, for strength conditioning or, or personal training or camps? What would be the start yeah. to that? Yeah, you're right, boy. You know, it was really something is, we figured out really quick how fragile our, our systems are. Mm-hmm. You know, when something like that comes along, and especially if you're a brick and mortar business owner, how fragile it is. So you have to be aware of things like that. And I think people are now. But if I were to start, if I was a young guy, uh, young girl coming out of college and I was going to start or someone that was working in a facility and maybe I got pushed out just because of COVID, they just couldn't keep me anymore. And I was going to start. First thing I would do is decide who do I want to work with? In other words, who's my ideal client? If I'm a, let's say I wanted to work with men or women ages 40 to 55 years old, or I wanted to work with high school athletes to get them ready for college, or I wanted to work with college, getting them ready for professional sports or whatever. The more you identify who you want to work with, the easier it is to market and therefore the easier it is for those people who you're trying to market to, to um, uh, you know, grasp the marketing is for them. So if I say, hey, I'm running a, let's say I'm running a middle school girls volleyball uh, speed training program or jump training program. Well, Every girl who's a middle school volleyball player is going to say, that's me. Lee's talking to me because I'm a middle school girl volleyball player. So the more clear we can become on who it is that we want to work with, those people understand it because we start speaking to them. Like I'll, if, again, if I go back to the 40 to 55 year old people who maybe want to just get in shape. Well, if I start talking their language of a 40 year old to 55 year old and start talking about the issues that they might have through those, those, uh, that age span, well, I identify and they identify with me. So that makes it a lot easier. So the first thing I would do, know who you want to work with and then be very clear as to the outcome that you're going to be able to get for them. And then that's ultimately what gets them to buy your package or session or whatever it is. If you can tell them what you're going to do for them and that's what they want, you, you have a really good chance of building your clientele pretty quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, What if you're a person who has a large dynamic, right? Say you worked at a facility and let's say in the mornings you were a personal trainer, but then in the evenings you either volunteered at a college as a strength coach or, you know, may have worked as an assistant or you trained athletes as well. Would you recommend keeping that base or would you recommend now maybe niching down if you're going to start your own business just so you can kind of target a specific market? 
Yeah, so I, I don't think you ever turn away money that you've mm -hmm. already got. But if you're really going to expand and you're really going to, to, to grow, you've got to speak to a population of people. Otherwise, now, now, if you asked me this question years ago, I said, go for it. Train anybody you want, because it was fairly <laughs> new. It wasn't as big as it is now. Now, you can't walk down a street without seeing you know, a CrossFit place here, a personal training place here, a Pilates place here. They're everywhere now. They weren't back then. So the more specialized you become, the better it is. But that does not mean you can't work with different populations of people. It's just that when you market, don't market all of it at the same time, because then you're kind of like, who are you really speaking to? And the people that are looking at your ads or maybe it's a Facebook ad or, and if you say, hey, I train everybody and I help everybody with everything. Well, they're like, I don't know what that means. Like, what do you mean? You can actually help me with this, but you can help a seventh grader and you can help us. It just confuses people. But if I say specifically, this is what I can do. Now, can I help you? It's like, if I go to a dentist I better not say, hey, can you cut my hair, right? They, I know what, they know what they do, I know what they do, so I'm not gonna go to them if I want my hair cut. So that makes it so much easier to be able to grow your clientele. Yeah, absolutely. So making sure that you know whoever you wanna train, you're specifically trying to market to them, or if you wanna train a large group, maybe have different marketing strategies for each instead of saying, I train it all because as we know today, like you said, because there's this explosion of gyms and it seems like there's a specialty for everything. I mean, you can find, you know, now there's strictly Pilates, strictly CrossFit, you know, all kinds of stuff so niche down that, you know, when you going out there and saying, I can do everything is probably, you know, not the best idea because that's already taken or especially I think coming from online, why would you, you know, I mean, we have COVID obviously, but now since we're, we're hoping to get out of it, you know, yeah. what's going to separate me doing that on virtual from you owning your own place that kind of does exactly what I'm looking for. Definitely. Yeah, exactly right. And anytime, anytime you can separate yourself from the crowd of people that are doing things, you stand out. And sometimes, sometimes when you're deciding as to what you want to do, that's what you have to think of. Like, look at the masses, look at all the other personal trainers and all the strength coaches and people that have their private businesses. What are they all focusing on? Well, if you think you can do what they're doing and do it better, then go ahead. But if you can just niche it a little bit different, even if I, if I were to say, hey, I work primarily with uh, you know, female athletes, Okay, automatically, I just niche myself into an area where there's, there's tons and tons of female athletes. But what I've done is I've separated myself from everybody else who trains any athlete, not saying that you can't train all athletes, and you should. But if you separate yourself, and say, I only train female athletes, you're probably going to get their attention quicker than the guy who's doing everybody. You know, it just, and that's, that's just the way it is today. Cause there's, like you said, there's a million different shops all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I also think it, it allows you to, because as you know, let's just bring up what you just said. If you say, I only train female athletes, it's going to allow you to get deeper into what they need. cue angles and all the different, you know, different you things with, you know, psychological stuff and body chemistry and all those things. And that's going to allow you to then make yourself better as opposed to, I think, like you said, if, you know, I'm doing both, I'm going to miss out on those. Not that you, you know, you can't do both, but exactly. It automatically makes you dive deeper into whatever you're doing, right? If you you brought up before 40 to 55, okay, what do they do? What are their injuries? As opposed to I can train, you know, 12 to 55 now that's a large thing, but now 40 to 55, they have different schedules, different injuries, and there's all those things. So I think that's, you know, a great piece that, you know, being able to, you'll naturally, you know, go deeper into your new niche just by cutting off some of the numbers. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's funny, people will find you if you're good. So when I first opened up my Speed Academy in New York, I trained athletes. That was my thing. I, and primarily I had high school and younger well, what happened, Joe, is after a couple of years, I started to get parents saying, well, Lee, we want to get in shape. Why don't you do something for us? 
So I did. I, that's when I started my, my adult group training in the mornings when I had some time to do that. So I didn't search them. They found me because I got results with their kids and I made it a fun environment and we trained hard, but we trained smart and adults were saying, well, why not me? So they'll find you. If you're good at what you do in your particular niche, like if we talked about that female population, well, the boys are going to say, now, wait a minute. Why can't I train with you? Because you're making them faster and stronger. Why can't I? So I think if you do your job and you niche it, your niche will naturally grow because people are going to start knocking on your door and say, hey, what about me? So I think that's the thing. Do your job, do it well, and you won't have any problem getting clients. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And, and exactly what you said, that's what happened to me when I was in the city as well. I would start off with a kid, 12, 13, and eventually, you know, mom, dad watching or going to their gym at their apartment building would say, hey, what about, you know, what about me? I need, I need some training because most of the time they do and they're busy. That's right. You know, you get along very well with my son or daughter and, you know, I get along with you and I trust you because I've seen what you've done with my son. And then, you know, we build a client and then usually it's, you know, their brother or their sister, the mom, the dad come, and then we get that, you know, we kind of roll right into it. So That's definitely exactly something it. that happens. Yep. Yep. Uh, so shifting a little bit to the, you know, the camps and the clinics and, and all those things that, that you do, what would you suggest if you wanted to get into that, but you haven't done anything yet? So say we had a regular business and I know last time we talked about, you know, reaching out to the AD, getting involved in the sports, but how would you kind of niche down a camp if you're a person who worked at a facility or, you know, was a, a strength coach at a smaller school. And now we want to maybe go out to the park or rent a field and, and put on a clinic. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the first thing I would do, if you, if you're a person that has never worked with groups and never run a camp, this is what I would do. If you work in a facility, whether you're a college strength coach or a high school strength coach or a, um, a private owner of a facility, I would take the athletes that you have. And I would say, Hey, listen, in two weeks, I'm gonna run a speed camp with you guys. And you're gonna be my first group to run a speed camp. And I wanna, I wanna try some new things in this format. So I would run a, have like a dry run with them and get comfortable with how a speed camp has to be run, how you have to flow. Cause it's different than a regular training session because you're not gonna spend time as much like in a training session, I might just <clears throat> focus on one thing. But in a speed camp, especially if it's a one day speed camp, you're going to touch on a lot of things. So, but if you're going to get into the camp model and that model of a business, again, if you, it's easier to get more kids if you create a niche. And I'll give you an example. My very first camp that I ever did, and this was in the early 90s, I did it with a volleyball club. And what happened was I was, I had opened up my facility. I was training, but I was starting to work with volleyball players, just high school girl volleyball players. And a coach noticed that these kids were moving really well and they were doing a really good job. So she asked me if I would come to their school and run a camp. I did a three-day camp. I think we went like three hours or something like that each day. So what happened is from that one, now I got known as someone that could run volleyball speed camps and clinics. So that automatically helped me grow. I could grow. And then, you know, with my niche, like I was a basketball player and I was a tennis player. Well, those sports started to do it. And then baseball and softball and football. And so because I, I did a really good job and I focused on volleyball early on, the other ones, like I said, just found me. They saw the results and they realized, hey, speed is speed and it's going to help anybody. So if you niche, it's going to allow you to create a camp or a clinic that you know what the skills are going to be. For example, if you run a general speed camp, which are great, I love them, I think you should do them, I think they're good. But if you're not adept at um, speaking the language of multiple sports, you can run into problems. And I'll give you an example. I ran a camp one time. I had several cross-country athletes. I had basketball athletes. I had lacrosse athletes. I even had, believe it or not, swimmers showed up because the parents wanted their kids to do something. So now I'm doing linear and lateral and jumping and all these other things. Well, cross-country athletes don't go lateral and they don't jump a lot. 
you know, my swimmers don't do any of that stuff, right? But they, but because they were younger kids, they benefited. But when you, when you target a specific sport, now I can talk that language. And if I had, let's say I had 50 uh, soccer players, I'll use the word pitch rather than field. I'll use marking rather than guarding. I'll use, you know, terminology that is very common for them. And it, it, what it does is it grows your connection with that athlete in that sport. So just like we talked about in your first question, I would niche it as much as possible because it's not only going to help your athletes, it's going to help you if you've never done it before, because now you know the skill set of that one sport that you're working on. Then you can grow your skills to be able to work with all athletes in one, one camp. Yeah. I think that's a very important kind of something to use in, you know, for everybody listening out there, when you want to, even with normal athletes, you have to speak their language because it helps them with everything you're doing, right? If you want to teach them a new move or, you know, a better way to move, you can say, okay, you're going to, you're going to get down to first base better. You're going to play defense better. You have to put it in that context because they don't care about cross bridges and explosives and, you know, GTOs and, and muscle spindles. So you're That's going right. to have to relate them, especially younger kids. Oh, who's your favorite basketball player? Okay. Steph Curry. Okay. Well, if you do this drill, you're going to move like Steph Curry. Now we've made that same connection because if you say, oh, well, you're going to be able to plant your foot better and then you're going to reduce Achilles injuries. A kid's not going to deal with that, but that's, I think that's a great piece where, especially when you, you talked about marking and, and, you know, the different terminologies, because you want to relate to what they're doing as much as, as we possibly can, because then they feel comfortable with you. And I think a lot of times the kid will say, Oh, he's, he's talking about my sport, right? He took the time or she right. took the time and, and now they're aware of, of what's actually going on. I mean, I did the same thing. You know, you have a new sport like soccer. I've trained soccer players, but I wasn't really big on soccer. I just really can't watch it. But I went and watched some documentaries on Manchester United and things like that, just so I understood what was actually going on so that when they talk about things, I'm not, you know, kind of lost in the dark about about what's going on. And and there's that trust factor. And, you know, let me give you an example. I remember when I had my Speed Academy and I had some interns and we were running a camp. And I had multiple athletes. I had football players and I had the basketball players and tennis and all these. Well, my interns didn't quite at the time, they couldn't differentiate between some of the movements for different sports. So we had a couple offensive linemen that were in this camp. And I just happened to know who they were. They were at a local high school. I knew them, I knew their parents and stuff. So they came. Well, then we had basketball players, we had tennis players. Well, we were teaching lateral movement. So an offensive lineman, when they do a kick slide, when they're protected for a quarterback, it's, it's a shuffle, but it's a totally different skill set than a basketball player doing a shuffle. So when you group your athletes, you want to make sure you group them so that when it's their turn to do the skill, you can talk their language. So I would say, hey, give me my, give me my football guys, you're up, right? And then my basketball player, you're up with my tennis. So when we're doing the lateral movements, it was easy for me to say how they should be moving and what it should look like. Um, and, and to give them, even if we're all doing the same lateral shuffle, the terminology helps if, they, if it, it's spoken in their language, like how they're gonna move in their sport. So that's an example of being able to look at a group and say, hey, let's get you into the group that you're most comfortable with. And these are the guys you're going to be moving with anyway. Like if I'm, if I'm with basketball players, that's my, I'm comfortable there. But if you make me move like an offensive lineman, well, I'm not comfortable there. So that's the difference. And that's why it's good to niche early on till you get comfortable being able to run the camps and clinics. Yes, absolutely. What would you do? You know, I just thought of why we were talking. If you were, say you had a, a big camp, 50 people, you know, same sport, <clears throat> what are some of the techniques you used in order to say you have athletes that are better at certain movements and then you have athletes that are not so good in order to say, you're, let's just bring up the lateral thing. How do you kind of break that down within the camp so that everything still flows? If you have, you know, same age, but different movement abilities within a camp, just so everything flows. Right, exactly. So first thing you do is, especially when you've got large numbers, is, and if, if it's an overall camp, not a specific camp, 
you just group your movements into like the seven patterns. Um, you know, the, the lateral shuffle and lateral run, all those things. And so now what you do is you, you emphasize the most simple part of that skill. So if I'm gonna do, let's stick with lateral shuffle. I'll just say, hey, first group up, you're gonna shuffle five yards, that's it. So the good athletes do it very easily. The athletes that are learning and struggle, they might struggle a little bit, but it's only five yards. It's a very quick movement. They can get in and get out. And what I try to do is just give, if, if I'm speaking to the group, so if I'm speaking to the entire group, I give very global comments like push harder, good effort, you know, finish all the way. If I'm speaking specifically to those athletes that are struggling, I will like, let's say you were one of my athletes and I happen to know your name, you were in that big camp. I'd say, hey, Joe, come here for a minute. When you do your shuffle, make sure you stay in the tunnel. So now you know that direction was pointed straight at you so I can help you out as where the other athletes that weren't struggling didn't hear that instruction because I don't want them to think they have that same problem. So that's why you gotta be very careful. But I, the, the one thing is you can take the experienced athlete and the not so experienced athlete, put them in the same drill, just don't make the drill difficult. So if I did something that had a lot of skill set to it, like real lot of turning and change of direction, that newer, lesser skilled athlete's gonna get lost. They're gonna have a hard time and they're gonna look bad. I don't put them in those situations. I just say to the more experienced athlete, look at you guys gotta go hard. I know this isn't the hardest drill, but you gotta go hard. You gotta push quick, make yourself better by doing it even you know, more skilled than you would if you were just going through it slowly. You know what I mean? So, mm -hmm. so those are how we do it. A lot of it is just setting it up so that you speak to, speak to their particular issues that they're having. Right, so individual cueing for the athletes aren't as skilled, but also when you're choosing your drills for a camp, don't try to knock it out of the park, but, and for the guys or for the girls that are highly skilled, we just increase the intensity, but we keep the movements exactly, exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. Right. Just keep it, make it easy. You've got to think a camp is different than a training session because mm -hmm. in a training session in your business, you don't have 50 athletes. You might have 10 if you have group sessions or maybe 12, so much easier. But when you have large groups, you immediately got to put drills and skills that are easy to have flow because you want to keep the momentum of the drill going of the camp going rather than having kids who absolutely can't do it. Then it stalls really fast on you. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a big thing too, even when you get into the weight room setting, because you see a lot of people when they first start putting programs together, you know, and you look at them and they understand, why don't you put these things in here? Let's just say cleans and, and I'm like, well, you, you can't put those things there. What do you mean? I'm like, we have 30 people in a weight room. You can't do that because it's going to mess up the flow we talked about. And I think that's something that, you know, everybody listening should take into consideration. All the exercises are great, but when you write programs for, you know, five, six, or even 20 people, weight room or outside, you always have to analyze the flow, Right. How yep. much is it going to kill my flow if I have everybody trying to do a snatch or doing a complex movement outside? And I think That's there's, I still think there's a disconnect there because when you read, you know, the books and the movement books and a lot of the new techniques out there, a lot of it will be, the, the drills will be fantastic, but it's always, I always ask the question, can we do this to 20 people or how are we going to do this to 20 people? Because, you know, you get the paper and it's got all these intricate things with the A, B and the C block. And it's got all these different things like a schematic for like, a you know, for the, the breaker in your garage. But then I I'm know. like, how are you going to do this in 40 minutes with 35 people when half of them are A, not going to be able to do it or B, you're going to have to go backwards. So I always think that's a, a, a great thing just to keep things simple and to always think about kind of the flow of what we're doing when we're either in a weight room or if we're doing a camp with a hundred people. That's exactly right. First thing you get to do is plan, mm. plan the, the, the flow in the format, the drills will come, but you got to look at the environment. What are you going to try to do with this group of kids, this many numbers, and then you can put your stuff together. Yep. And I think personally that the flow looks better than, because people don't understand from the outside if the drills are complex, right? They're going to look at it like right. this is a disaster. It doesn't matter if <laughs> exactly. what you're doing is absolutely groundbreaking. Yes, exactly. 
Speaking of groundbreaking, so uh, in your opinion, where do you think the new direction of speed and, and movement is going? Like, what do you think we're going to see in the future in terms of how we teach it or just what the, the new athletes are going to be able to do with everything going on? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is my hope, and I'm starting to see it a little bit, is we as professionals really we're coaches we're, we're, we're teachers so we have to really understand learning better and I think we're starting to go that way like we're starting to literally understand when an athlete sees something or is put into a drill or learning a new skill what's actually happening like how is their brain absorbing the information how do they absorb it best um, what's the process of skill acquisition and I know this has kind of been out there for a long time, and it's almost like just only the academic people were talking about it. We need guys like you and I and our interns and kids coming. We need to talk more about how do we actually learn. So, for example, if I'm teaching a new athlete, a new skill, I have to understand how the learning process is going to occur. So now I can teach them how to sprint change directions, backpedal, jump and land or leap and land or do some skill. And I understand that they will not be perfect. They're going to make mistakes. And that's part of the process. The other part to this, Joe, that I think is really important is that I think the most important skill any athlete can learn, and we as coaches have to understand this, is the ability to read the environment and the situation. So if you had your team and you're playing my team, I have to be able to read what's happening in front of me. I have to see where you're going. I have to see where the boundaries are. I have to understand my speed versus your speed. Can I cut you off? And what happens is in our environment, we get things so closed and so part versus whole part. And what happens is the athletes learn how to do the drill better but they actually don't understand how to apply the skill in an open environment, which is sport, because we forget. Unless you're working with people who just want general fitness, like they want to look better or feel better, if we're dealing with athletes, the ultimate uh, goal is to get them to play better. They got to play better in their games. So if we don't put them in environments where they have to read better, they have to make decisions better, they have to be able to uh, be put in situations where learning occurs because they're getting exposed to new stimulus, just like we did when we were two years old and learned how to eventually walk faster and run and jump. Nobody taught us how to do that. We were put in an environment where that happened. And I think that's where we're starting to see people go there. But the problem is most coaches don't like the ugliness. They don't like it to look messy when an athlete struggles on a drill. I'm like, you've got to let that happen. You've got to let them have their struggle to learn the process. All right? They're going to get it, but you just got to be willing to give them time versus holding their hand on every single step because that's not how learning occurs. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that is hopefully something because you're right. It has been around forever. We know what happens with the processing, right? I've read a lot of things about sleeping, right? You learn a new skill, you want to sleep for 10 hours because if you learn something new and then you get that sleep afterwards, it's going to be more reciprocated in the brain. But yep. you're right, every it's it's still, we, we still have this obsession with, is there a helicopter with a camera, you know, over you watching what you do instead of having a right. kid run around in a circle and try to only cut on one foot and it doesn't look good. But in reality, we want to put them in as many positions as we can that they're not used to because that's where the injuries occur. The injuries don't occur on the lateral drill where we plant five yards and come back. I, you know, exactly. I'd like to see the numbers. How many people got hurt on a five ten five or, a, exactly. you know, running zigzag runs and, and things like that. I think it's almost zero, right? It happens yep. when, you know, you try to, you, your body wants to cut on a specific area of the field, but somebody's coming from that way. So now we have to cut three, three or two yards before that and and that's where we kind of run into those things so i think that is something very important but i hope you know hopefully too just like you said we get over that boundary because i think that's still an issue right or people i think get obsessed with certain drills and i don't know if it's consciously or unconsciously because i know i've done it a little bit too you kind of get tunneled off 
not by trying to, but when you get so caught up in writing programs, you get caught in these six or seven exercises or these seven or eight movements. And so I think it's very important to, you know, step back or a, make sure you're talking to a large array of different strength coaches and, and movement people just so they can help download some of those things. I mean, I have a, a friend I talk to all the time and he's very good at pulling things out of me. He doesn't give me the answer. He'll give me little kind of breadcrumbs, if you will, and get the stuff out of me. Then I answer and it's, oh, wow. Okay. I knew that, but I haven't had to think about that for a long time, especially with quarantine and COVID and, and all that stuff. That's right. Well, what amazes me is if we look at all the areas that we have had to learn how to learn without somebody teaching us, that we become very good at. When you're a child and you learn to ride a bike, you, no matter how much as a parent you want to teach them, you can't. They have to just learn the balance, learn how to control it. But let's go on to areas of different, maybe even different tribes that still hunt for their food and had to learn how to throw a spear, had to learn, you know, they didn't go to a spear throwing camp, right? And get, <laughs> and get taught, you know, how to step with their left foot and go. They just learned how to do it because that's how they're going to feed the families, right? And Or to protect themselves from an animal coming at them. They had to learn how to throw and protect or throwing a rock to hit an animal or whatever. We forget that. Like we forget people know how to learn and know how to do things. So one of the things that I get frustrated with is people will say to me, well, like you didn't teach that athlete when they were struggling. I'm like, I know because there isn't anything that I could say that was going to make a difference. They just had to go through the experience. Now, if they were going in the wrong direction completely, I would help them. I would guide them. But if I know they're in the right direction, they're, get, they're starting to get it. They just haven't gotten it yet. Too many people are so afraid to let them struggle their way to success as where I'm like, they're going to learn a lot more if they figure it out on their own than if I tell them go to A, then to B, then to C, then to D. They just have to learn it and they will. And we just guide them. That's the best coaching you can do. Yeah. And I, I also think one of the not, I mean, a negative now to a lot is instead of, you know, when I grew, when I grew up, I played every sport in a large group and, you know, the older yes. guys would bully you around and, you know, there was people that were faster, smaller, but when you played, you know, basketball like yourself or even football, you learned how to move around or you learned different skill sets because if you're 11 years old and the guy chasing after you is 16 years old and, you know, he's 50 pounds heavier, you learn how to be a certain way. Or, you know, you look at other countries, like you talked about just in skill sets of soccer, they learn because it's almost a forced thing, right? If you even, let's just say you grow up in a place where you don't have any money. If you're barefoot and you're kicking a soccer ball around in the street, you're going to be a lot better at foot skills and, and those things, as opposed to if you are used to playing with cleats on grass. So those things I think are, are very important, but also, you know, very forgotten. And I also think and, you know, my experience, too, you have a lot of kids now, instead of playing in those groups, you know, touch football or, or basketball with the older ages where you really learn, how, you know, how to shoot jumpers and fadeaways and, and things like that to get over a bigger person. They're now using strength conditioning or a performance place to kind of take over that. And I don't think a deadlift bar is going to teach you the things that, that you talked about. You know, they're getting away from that play of, of large groups with older kids or people that may be higher skilled and they're just using a performance place. Oh, you know, I ask, do you play, do you play pickup basketball in the week? Oh no, I just come here. And I don't think I understand the, they'll want to get better and, and to add strength. But I also think as a, a strength coach and a, and a performance professional too, you want to emphasize, I want you to go out and play with people that are better than you to engrave those skills that, that you talked about, because that's going to make you better because you need unknown, right? A deadlift bar is on the ground. It weighs this much. You can either lift it or not, but that is not going to help you learn how to maneuver a soccer ball around somebody who's taller than you and faster. And therefore I don't think, you know, I think that kind of hurts that skill development that we've been talking about. hundred percent. Exactly. That's it. At the end of the day, strength and conditioning is to number one, let's, let's keep them healthy. 
Let's keep an athlete healthy. Let's help them. And let's just improve limitations. Let's improve weaknesses. Let's if they need to be a little faster, need to be stronger, let's do that. But if that overcomes the skill development of the sport that they're trying to get better at, you're going to have an athlete that's maybe fast, strong, but can't play. And if you can't play, the higher you climb, like if, if you and I were in fifth grade and we're bigger and faster than everybody, even if we weren't as skilled, we'd probably still win. But when you get into high school and college, if you don't have skill, I don't care how big and strong you are. If you don't have skill, you just can't compete with the athletes that do have skill. So I'm with you 100 percent. Yeah, absolutely. Skill is the number one thing. Right. And you, you can't outlive skill as much as, you know, and I, I think it's another part when you see and, and I will go into this. But professional, you know, athletes, they have all these commercials where they're running and lifting. Oh, my favorite is, you know, Tyler Glass now lifts like this or LeBron does all these things. And I'm like, it doesn't matter what LeBron does. I mean, I'm going to be honest. His skill level is so high that he could do band curls for the next whatever. And he's still going to be that way. You know, obviously the injury stuff is is what he really does it for. But I also don't like how. The, the lifting program that, that, you know, LeBron does or, or Michael Jordan or, you know, Fernando Tatis and, and these guys, or, you know, Ronaldo, let's just say yeah. they market their lifting Tom Brady, the T12, when in reality it has nothing to do with that. That's keeping them, you know, healthy and, and they have an understanding of their body, but their skill set is, is in the moon and that is what's happening, right? I mean, the T12, I don't know if you've ever read it, but it's yeah. foam roll, you know, bands, make sure your joints move. I drink a lot of electrolytes. I make sure I'm really hydrated. I eat very good food. And, you know, I have a guy who makes sure that my joints are articulating right and they're at appropriate ranges. But then you have Tom Brady, who has the best skill of anybody, I think. And then I watched a documentary where he has a throwing coach who literally was fixing his elbow positioning, throwing a pass. And this was like a year ago and the guy's first ballot hall of fame, whatever. So I think those are very important things that people understand, you know, not that it's bad to watch Bryce Harper train, but there you understand that their skill level is so high that it really doesn't matter what they're doing. I think actually certain things you can actually hinder them. If you, you know, start to injure them or, or do different things because you don't want to mess that skill up. I mean, I've talked to several people, you know, that train it in those levels and it's, you know, I'm just helping them stay them and not really, yeah. Oh, I didn't make so-and-so run a four, three. I just help it so that they continue to run a four, three. And if they run a four, two, nine along the way, you know, that, that I don't think that was a lot of me. Yeah, that's right. No, I'm with you on that. You're exactly right. It's uh, just keep them healthy, but keep that skill up because skill is skill is going to pay the bills. Skill is going to pay the bills. It's going to get the scholarship. It's going to get you onto the varsity high school team or make the JV team. But, you know, if, if you're big and strong, that's a bonus. And that's, that's nothing's wrong, certainly wrong with that. That's our job. But yeah, if you don't have skill, you're, you're not going to go very far. Absolutely. Uh, so just switching gears, you know, talking about skill, what do you think about all the, you know, the injuries going on? I mean, just to bring stuff off the top of my head, you have, Trey Young, you know, hurt his ankle on the referee, which is terrible. But then, you know, Giannis with with the knee, LeBron had the ankle moving into baseball. We have all these oblique injuries and and all these things. Why do you think that, you know, we we are at such a high level of skill and we have so much information? Why do you think that the number of injuries and and all these things are continuing to, I I feel like it's blossoming because, I mean, I turned on the NBA playoffs. Giannis is amazing. You know, if anybody gets, you know, watch him play but it just seems like it's all these soft tissue and, and all these different things all of a sudden. And, and I don't think that, you know, hasn't happened in years. And, and I really don't think it's from the shortened season last year. I don't really like where they go towards that and say, we didn't play that many games last year. I, I don't think that, you know, it, it's not something that's, that's a huge factor. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't, I don't like them blaming the shortened season and stuff because you know what? These guys are athletes. They're sport. I mean, they're at the highest level. They they should be fit anyway, right? They should be ready to go. And it's not. A, yeah, I don't like that excuse. But so I think, and, and you know, again, this is my profession, and I I absolutely love it. But if you go back, so when I first started playing, okay, I grew up playing in the '70s and then the early '80s. There were not a lot of injuries like you had the basic stuff like you fell or you might get a pulled hamstring here and there or whatever. But there wasn't a ton 
of injuries where kids were just done because they tore their ACL. I didn't know what an ACL injury was until I got into college. Um, we just never had it. And I played football and I played basketball and tennis and track. I just I never saw them. But I think what happens is our training has become so focused on the training, like it's so intense and the volume has gotten big that I, and, and then the athletes are still playing travel ball. And, and so their recovery is not very good. Of course, the nutrition's not very good. So I think that athletes are getting to the point where they're getting stronger than they're capable of handling their tissues are capable of handling some of the explosiveness they have. Um, and I think that they're not well rested. I don't think the fascial system is being taken care of. That's another area that is starting to come out. I think that's going to be a real big one because the fascial system, the proprioceptive system of the fascial system is so much faster than the nervous system. But if the, pro if the fascial system is all knotted up because athletes are not, even though they're training harder, doesn't necessarily they're moving more. There's a lot of downtime. We didn't, I didn't have games to play when I was younger. We had outdoors. We didn't have the video type uh, aspects. So there's not as much sitting. And so I just think the culmination of not enough rest, getting over strong. I think too many athletes are getting stronger than they're capable of handling. And if if they're getting that strong, we have to do a better job of protecting that strength, mm -hmm. protecting the joint, protecting the tissues that have to adapt to that amount of force in the central nervous system that we can now produce. And I think with all that stuff, we're starting to see these silly, crazy injuries. I'm like, how the heck did he hurt himself just driving to the basket? Mm -hmm. And it's like a six week injury. You know what I mean? That kind of, you know, like, like you said, Trey Young stepped on the officials. Well, you know, that's just bad luck, you know, but Giannis hyperextends his knee off a landing that he probably does 60 times a game and he happens to do it, you know? So I just think it's a culmination of all those things. But I think if we make our athletes really, really strong, really, really powerful, but we don't adapt the entire system to it, which is the recovery system and the nutritional system, all those things, we see these injuries coming up because we didn't have them before we started doing this type of training at this high level, now we're starting to see more of them. Yeah, and absolutely. we know more, right? Yeah. Research knows more, but yet we keep getting more injuries. Yeah, that's that's one of the things, you know, we have all this stuff. And, and I think to your point about making sure that the fascial system, the nervous system, those things recovered, the way in which we the recovery we're seeing also, I think, does not address those things, right? It's go do the the, the chronological, uh, the cryo chamber or do the infrared saunas. And, and I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm a big, right. you know, I do the cold showers and, and all that stuff, but I think it doesn't address that stuff. Instead of, you know, you coming in for treatment over and over and over again, go and sleep for 12 hours, right? Take, yeah. take a nice melatonin, go to bed and, and sleep for 12 hours and it makes your thing. So I think a hundred percent, you know, they're, they're becoming stronger than their skill, right? Louis Simmons, regardless if people love him or hate him, he always talks about if I have a guy, you know, this is just for powerlifting, but it, but it sets, if, if I have a, a powerlifter and he's gaining weight and he's gaining muscle, but his box jumps and his lifting isn't going anywhere, I failed as a strength coach because now we have a problem, right? And, and that's in pertaining to powerlifting, but he looks at powerlifting as a sport, right. so it goes anywhere else. If I have a sprinter... And, you know, they're looking better and, and they're stronger and they're filling everything out, but their hundred time isn't going anywhere. We have to step back and say, okay, is this helping the skill? And I, I think that's what you're bringing up. And, and I think, you know, same thing, watching all of it, are they getting better? Because, you know, if you're hitting 30 home runs right in before the all-star break, but now you can't play the rest of the thing, you only hit 30 home runs, right? I hate how they have all these, you know, they, yeah. they, we use a, like a, it's like estimations. Oh, well, they're hitting 35 home runs before the all-star break. That means they're going to hit 70. And I'm like, yeah, but are they going to play? Right. I think that that understanding of movement and, and other things, I think Jacob DeGrom is, is a great example of teaching a player, an athlete, how to understand their body, because I think with him, I don't know if you follow him or not, but with him, you see 
his ability to say, no, I know what I'm doing, right? I, yeah, I can, my exactly. side sore, but I know it's not terrible. I don't need to sit out for six weeks. I can make my next start, but I'm going to throw 70 pitches, you know, or, right. you know, and one of the things about him is his ability to adjust, you know, happened in the last start. He gave up three runs in the first inning, retired the, the next 18 people in a row. But the point of that is, is with him, I think he's one of the only ones where he's had these same little injuries over the course of the last month, month and a half, but you're still seeing him go on the mound because they allow him or he himself knows, hey, I, I have an injury, yes, but I understand my body. I understand how to fix it. So I Definitely. can still kind of go out there and, and kind of perform. Definitely. That's a great example. He's a great example of that. And and you would see that with other athletes who, who um, you know, they kind of, they, they feel where their body's at. Like they can feel if they're getting close to the edge of the cliff, like they're and they'll back off. And then you get others who just are like a bulldog and they end up hurt all the time. You know, and, and, you know, people love that bulldog because of that mentality. Well, now you're, now they're on the bench and you can't watch them play because they're hurt. So I agree with you. Yeah. That's a great point. Absolutely. Uh, in terms of the injuries, how do you think we can, fix some of this stuff, right? Because I know going backwards, for, you know, that'd be very hard to kind of turn turn the gas back a little bit and, and not have them deadlifting all the time and, right. and increasing that power. Because I think in every sport, we're just so obsessed with numbers and velocity and, you know, getting bigger and stronger and giant. How, in your opinion, do you think we address some of those things and maybe make it uh, a more positive thing to maybe go back on some of the training you know not to make it worse but just you know get them to understand and, and kind of keep them on the court field or pitch you know longer because you know the injuries are, are crazy in my opinion you know a guy gets a jam finger and he's out for three months I know I know so I'll give you an example I have a I, I don't want to mention the athlete's name but it's a professional athlete I'm working with now that is older that's been been around a while so has a really good um you know, a good age of training has been there. Right now, what we're doing, his goal is, number one, to get his skill in basketball to the highest level he can. Just keep improving that. So we've really made that the, that's the, that's the foundation of everything we're working around. I have him sprinting one time a week, every, excuse me, every seven to eight days on his calendar, he's got a sprint and he's going to do 40s, and he's going to do no more than four, and that's it. He's got vertical jump training one time every seven days, okay? He's got agility or speed stuff twice out of seven days, and then his strength training is only twice, and one day is a little bit more, you know, quite a bit more actually heavy force production, and the other one is more supportive and a little bit quicker motions, but that's it. Everything else is built around his skill development. And I've scheduled, scheduled him. So even the days that he's, he's doing his jumping, they're combined when he does his strength training. So he can do his strength training, which isn't high volume at all. And then he's going to rest and then he can do his, his like his jumping. And the reason I did that is he has three days where he has nothing else other than his basketball, his skill and his shooting, everything else is, is recovery and nutrition and going for a walk and relaxing and things of that nature. I think if we can even get the high school and the college level athlete, once they've developed this certain level of you know, strength to be productive, because if strength or speed is a limiting factor for them, why they can't make it, well, we got to improve that. Mm -hmm. But I think once we do, we have to be willing to shut it off and say, hey, let's just keep you strong. We don't have to get, if you're a 375 pound deadlifter or 400 pound squatter and you weigh 160 pounds, 165 pounds, what am I gonna gain by getting you to 475 or 500? I don't think I'm gonna gain anything, especially if they're already a good athlete. So I think we have to be willing to get athletes to a level and then say, let's keep you healthy, keep your skill up, keep playing your sports, keep getting better at reading how to play and, and grow your game that way. And I think if we do that, we're going to see injuries come down because they're going to have more recovery. They're going to learn that 
the, the more they see things and the more they, they uh, are playing, the better they're going to get at moving and then the less injuries they're going to get because they're better at moving. Because what happens, Joe, is I've had a lot of athletes that would say, no, I'm not going to go to basketball. I want to train with you. And I'm like, mm -hmm. you know, go do your basketball stuff. I'll get you. I, I can get you, but go play. Go play your sport. You know, don't do too much. Like, don't go on, like, two different AAU teams and your <laughs> high school team. Just go and play. Get better at that, and then I'll support you from there. And I think that way we can start to bring the injuries down. Yeah, I, I can't agree more. I mean, that's that's been something, too, with, with me and some of my athletes. I You know, I don't want to go do certain things. I would rather lift because there is that overwhelming thing somebody somewhere bigger faster stronger the bigger you are the stronger you are the faster you are and and I, I think that I understand that but at the same time it's that skill and I've heard it too no no I did you pitch or did you throw a bullpen did you play basketball oh no no I, I would rather take the time off to lift it I hear all the time especially perspective at or prospect athletes too oh I'm gonna I have an off season. I'm, I'm going to take a break away from soccer or whatever it have be. And, and I want to spend time getting bigger and stronger where the missing part is as we get bigger, as we get stronger, if you can't move and deal with those forces, the new forces that we kind of put on them, then we have the injuries. And to your point, like you said before, if you're a 400 deadlifter, what are we, you know, where are we going? I think, the, the fact is, you know, because in baseball, I know they do it, you know, at, at TCU, they do it. And in, in, in with the Astros, people don't understand there is a place, especially in, you know, with correlations. After you hit 475 or so, I think on the deadlift, I can't remember the number, the, the results start going down. There is a negative yeah. correlation after you get to, I think it's 425 for a pitcher on trap bar or something like that. But I think yeah. those are the things that need to be talked about because, we need to have a limit. I think it'd be great to say, okay, if you're a football player, once we get to 500 pound squats, you're done, right? You can, you can test every month to make sure you can still squat 500 and to make sure, you know, the program you're doing isn't, isn't hindering you or making you go backwards. But I think that that would be, you know, something that that would be a big deal because now we can concentrate more on that skill. Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. And again, why are we doing it? You know, at the end yep. of the day, if a kid is not involved in a sport, they probably wouldn't be coming to us unless they wanted to just get bigger, like they wanted to look good, you know. Otherwise, they're not going to come pay money and train with us unless they're trying to get, you know, better in their sport. So we got to keep in mind, let's not, let's not, you know, burn them out in our facility and then they have nothing left for the court or the field or the ice or the track or whatever. So, yeah, I think it's really important. And again, I don't want anybody to miss it. I'm a big proponent of being strong, but there's a relative, like, like you were saying, I know, I know Zach with TCU and him. It's, it's, there's a point of no return. When we get stronger and stronger, our co-contraction goes up. But when I'm trying to move a limb fast, I don't want co-contraction and all the joints. I need one side of my joint to be contracted while the other one relaxes so we can have a fast lever or a fast limb. But as you co-contract with heavier weight, that takes that away. So you got to be real careful. And we need to start working on more speed of movement once we have a good foundation of strength. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think, you know, we brought up before with the lifting stuff, we're teaching the body and the nervous system to react separately as opposed to together. And that's where we get those uh, stuff. So with that, what do you think are the, you know, there is a lot of, you know, the analytics, right? I think they're great, but also I think they're a disaster some of the times with, some pitchers, they throw 60 pitches and it's whatever, you know, and the technology, I think it's a great thing, but I also think sometimes they, it gets thrown in your face and, and kind of hinders things. What do you think are some of the positives and then, and then also some of the negatives of this boom in the analytics with the catapults and the whoop and, you know, the, the, the aura ring and, and all those things? Yeah. Yeah. Of course, anytime they come out with new technology that, can benefit in some way, that's a positive. But as you said, man, I'll tell you, there's something because I'm old enough to have seen all the training pre all these analytics and GPS systems where you, you use your instinct, you use your eye, you have a conversation with a pitcher or with you know, maybe it's a running back that when I used to coach football, if, if they looked like they were just wearing down and 
you know, especially in high school, I had the conversation with them. I'm like, okay, that's it. You're done. You know, you're out and I'd some, bring somebody else. I didn't need a GPS system to tell me that. Now, having said that, if, if I can get, you know, reads on heart rate and, you know, how many, uh, how much volume I put in in a practice, because I don't know without having something like that, I don't know how many miles they put in in a practice or how, what their maximal speeds were. So from that standpoint, I like it from, if I can say, hey, you never reached over 70% of your maximal speed. Let's finish practice with like three sprints at 25 meters or 30 meters full speed, you know, just because I want to get it there. As where if I didn't have that stuff, I might think they've sprinted enough, but they really never hit maximal speeds. But the problem I have with a lot of it is, and if we go back to the World Series a couple of years ago, when, you know, Tampa Bay pulls a pitcher out, when he was still just throwing so mm-hmm. well, I think it was Tampa Bay, or I might be mistaken. I'm trying to think who it was, John a blank. He was still throwing aces. I mean, he was throwing really well, but analytics said, you know, he's reached his max. They take him out of the World Series, and then they end up losing, right? Whether that was the reason or not, you've got to use instinct. You've got to have communication. Um, you've got to look at the pitches, in that case, in baseball or whatever sport, and you just got to use better judgment. Sometimes the human element can't be beat. Sometimes that's the best one, that instinct, especially coaches who have a lot of experience and have seen things. So I think you got to marry the two together and not let one dominate the other. And I'll tell you, being a basketball fan too, I can't stand analytics when they say we need to shoot more threes and never shoot a pull-up jumper. I'm like, you're, you're, nobody can convince me of that. No one. Now on any given day, yeah, you're going to get hot and you're going to knock down a lot, a lot of threes, but if you're going to pass up a 15 foot wide open pull-up jumper that every NBA player should be able to do, I think you're making a big mistake, but analytics, especially the Houston Rockets the last several years, Nope, we either shoot layups or we shoot threes. Um, uh, to me, that's just bad coaching. That's bad analytics, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I same, same boat with you. I, I think that the ability to understand or to see how much strain we're putting on an athlete or how much work you've done today, and then yes. the next morning telling me, you know, where you're at in terms of heart rate and, and those things is great. But, but again, it just gets in the way. I mean, you see it every day in baseball. A guy's throwing. 99 miles an hour in the seventh inning and they're like, okay, he's coming out, you know, or basketball kills me. I mean, even we'll bring up Giannis again. He hair balls every other three pointer just, but if he goes to the hoop, everybody stands around. Right. I think those are, I, I think it's, it's an ego thing. I, I think with the players now, and I personally think a lot of it is you pay a player 70, you know, 70 times more than, than the person telling them what to do. And I think we have kind of an issue because the shifts, right, in baseball, we bring that up. I hate them, and I also don't understand if you get shifted and you're lefty, bunt the ball third base. I understand yeah. there's unwritten this and unwritten that, but it's a game, and they chose to do that. Or yeah. on the other side, you're a major league hitter. You get paid millions of dollars to hit a baseball, and you can't hit a ball to the other side of the field when the third <laughs> baseman is now on the other side of second base. And yeah. so those analytic stuff, exactly. I think people have lost – you know, so much stuff. But then uh, again, to the, the injury stuff we're talking about, you're looking at Kevin Durant, right? He, you know, he made it through, but look at the fact that all season they held him out for this and COVID related things. But then all of a sudden the playoffs when Kyrie goes down and Harden can't play anymore. Now he plays 48 minutes. Right. And I think those are where I, I don't like that whole, we follow analytics when, when the environment is conducive to what we're doing, but then, if everybody's hurt and now I need Kevin Durant for 48 minutes, he's going to have to play the the 48 minutes, right? Even with right. when him and Giannis went back and forth, I think it looks bad if they're tired. I get that they're scoring points, but you're a professional basketball player and you should be able to run 41 minutes, 42 minutes and things of that sort. So I think, you know, agreement, that is, is my biggest problem because we have, you know, they use them when it's conducive and it always seems like they use them at the wrong time, but then you have them in places where you would need them. And, and, and there's where kind of, we have a, uh, maybe a mix up. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I think the, the one of the biggest problems you'll always have someone who's coached a lot of sports 
is it's a lot of times it's the front office, it's the GM or the president pushing the analytics because, but you're taking away the coach's ability to make a coaching decision. Now, even during the game, if the coach does that, you know, they pay hell for it afterwards. So they're kind of caught in the middle. You've got to allow the coach to be able to understand analytics. This is what we've seen. This is what just, that's the trend, but be able to make a decision and live with it. That's the biggest thing for me. You know, don't take, don't take the ball out of the coach's hand. Absolutely. And then I'll end with a little story. When I was in the minor leagues, I won't say teams, uh, but we had a kid who was throwing a pitch that the upper echelons didn't like. They called the athletic trainer's cell phone to tell him to give it to the head coach in the middle of the game in the fourth inning to tell the coach to take the kid out of the game. The person on the phone was a thousand miles away. Ah. Uh. Unbelievable. Yeah. So I, I think that's where the technology is. And like I said, you're, you're, you know, to what you brought up, we're not going to need coaches anymore because I feel like they just sit there now because, and there's no, you know, there's, there's no, you, you don't have a, a, a voice anymore because it's, you know, I, I could tell you up 70 pitches is going to come out, right. They don't get to do this. They don't want you bunting. They cut down on steals. You know, I, I think those things. And then the other thing, you know, the first person to really use it, was Billy Bean, and I think that the 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 missing part of that too is that everybody doesn't understand is whether it's right or wrong. I'm not saying I agree with exactly what he did, but I think what he did was great for for his right. situation. But you're seeing people now; they try to like bring people in who don't fit the mold or the thing that they need, and they try to That's convert right. them into what the the spot is. Right? If you need a guy who hit pulls balls over the fence. Uh, you bring in a guy who's just a good hitter, but he's an inside-out hitter. Now you're ruining his career because you're trying to get him to pull. Or you're taking somebody who steals a lot and saying, listen, you get on base a lot, but I don't want you to steal second now because analytically we don't have – You know, I just hope we don't see, you know, from a baseball standpoint, a, a bunch of people with iPads standing next to the coach and then they – you know, because that's just going to ruin – you know, the replay thing I think have just been – it's in a whole nother conversation, but the replays oh, yeah. I think have, have just ruined, you know, son's game with Devin Booker dribbling out of bounds. I mean, you have all these different things where it should just be an eye, right? It shouldn't yeah. be breaking it down and, and kind of stopping the game for 20 minutes. Yeah. Or why do you not, why do you have to have the on-court officials walk over to the table? You got people upstairs mm -hmm. that have like you and I have a computer in front of us. Why can't they just, Look real fast, say, hey, guys, this is it, boom, go. This shouldn't take more than 20, 30 seconds for them to have a replay. Because look at how quickly after a play happens, a replay comes on the TV. It's within seconds. Why can't they do that upstairs rather than stopping the game the way they do? And same thing with baseball, all these. Just let everything happen if they're going to do that from there. And if it takes longer than 30 seconds, Go with the call. Go with the call on the court or the field. It just drives me nuts. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that they should just have five people sitting in a room. Okay, cool. Hit a button, bang, overdo it. I mean, they could get it done, but they just – I don't know what they're talking about. I really don't understand. I, I mean, everybody can see it. It's the same thing. But, yeah, again, I, I just think there is a positive to the analytics, but I just hope, you know, they're talking about the robot umpires and, and all those things. So I just hope it doesn't – it's a sport, right? And as we talked about before, the athletes, there's supposed to be things that happen that are of human error. That's what makes That's a sport. Right. And I think the more we involve computers, I think it's important to make sure everybody stays healthy, make sure everybody's ready, but we don't have to live and die by, you know, because now if you're a kid in high school, if you have to if you throw 60 pitches and that's it, I mean, that's a dream. You can do that for the rest of your life. I know. I know. You're exactly right. Yeah. It's uh, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping, like you said, it, it, it reaches a tipping point and it doesn't go beyond that. Like, I don't want it to go to where, like you said, there's robots and, you know, just, it's gotta be quicker. It's gotta be the human errors part of it. Um, but I don't know. I don't know where if you and I could do it. It might, it's one thing, but unfortunately I don't think they'll listen to you or I. <laughs> yep, exactly. So we can yell. Uh, and then, you know, just to wrap it up, Lee, what's, uh, what's next in the future? You know, what, what's been going on, you know, since the last time we talked and, you know, I know everything's kind of cleared up now. What is, what is the next, uh, next project and, and what's going on? Yeah. So we've been working hard on our, our, we have a little membership called the Speed Insiders Toolbox. And um, it's something that we, we, we adapted and adopted into a new strategy, which has been really, really 
hitting well. People have really enjoyed it. We're going to launch it here mid-July. Um, we had kind of like a grassroots, we call them, group in there just kind of testing it out. And they really like it. And it's, we're doing it more like each month there's new modules on different skills. And we really dive into the different aspects of it. So that's been our big project. And then now that COVID has led up, I'm, I'm starting to do a little more traveling again. And, you know, I've worked with a couple um, there was a big conference I went to and then worked with an NBA team and I got a couple other going to work with the military in a couple weeks here. And so that stuff is starting to pick up again. So it's been good, but otherwise, yeah, we're just staying busy and just keep uh, plugging away. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, if anybody's interested in, you know, signing up for the, the new program that you talked about or, you know, just getting involved in, in some of the other things that you offer or asking questions, where's the best place to uh, get a hold of you and, and you know, get some uh, get some questions in or, or just get some new information? Yeah, thank you. No, if they just go to um, letaf.com, they can pretty much get us. My my direct email is lt at letaf.com. So they can, I'm always, I get back to people as quick as I can. And then if they want to learn more about our new program there, it's uh, if they go to speedtoolbox.com, um, they can they can learn more about that. And uh, yeah, it's fun. We got a lot of good stuff coming up and uh, it's it's just good to be back out again and getting back out and seeing people in person again. So it's been great. Absolutely. And uh, just one more question. Is there a link to the speed toolbox if they go to leadtaf.com or is that a separate? Yeah. Um, okay. yes. yes, they can find it there. If they, that's why I usually send people to leadtaf.com because you can pretty much find anything there or even our social media at leadtaf, but all of it's right there in the leadtaf.com. Okay, awesome. Well, Lee, thank you so much. I, I just appreciate you coming on and you know, love the conversation as always. And I just you know enjoy chopping it up and just kind of getting to talk to you and, and to share some knowledge. Likewise, Joe, this was a lot of fun. I always look forward to it. You do such a great job and, uh, and maybe down the road, we'll get a part three and we'll have, we'll solve everything in that one. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Looking forward to definitely have a part three. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you.